This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You know, when you think about Silicon Valley, you don't necessarily think of sweatshops, but that's the image that gets conjured up in a new book by our guest, Dan Lyons. He is a longtime tech reporter who ended up working on two seasons of the HBO series Silicon Valley. It was perhaps his reporting on the workplace culture of companies like Apple and various startups that showed him the stressful lives tech workers are actually dealing with. Great to have Dan back on the show. We had him on prior with his book, Disrupted, and now he has authored the book, Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. Dan, great to talk to you again. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you. Great to have you back. So I'll start off of the title. Why are we so miserable right now? Well, uh, I think that in some ways, a lot of unhappiness in the workplace emanates from Silicon Valley and in two forms. One is the technology products themselves, and uh, the other is business practices that have uh, originated in Silicon Valley and now are, are spreading to, to other industries. And so in Disrupted, my last book, it was I told the story of, of, of just me personally going into a tech startup and yep. trying to work. And in this one, uh, I've taken a sort of wider lens at a lot of other people in tech, a lot of other companies, and then even beyond that to um, industries outside of technology. Well, I think the culture part, and I'll start there, is really interesting because uh, of the changes that have really occurred. And obviously, as you said, a lot of it started with the tech field, but they have spread out. It's almost now it's 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 part of the millennial culture especially with millennials that are running companies, as to how they want to try and form what their company looks like. Yeah, and, you know, there's a strange phenomenon that crops up just in the last few years where you see sort of big, old, traditional companies trying to become more like startups, I guess, in order to recruit people, um, and, and especially to recruit millennials, and you see them either setting up labs and incubators in Silicon Valley in order to kind of absorb the culture there and then bring it back into the bloodstream of the, you know, the, the home company, or bringing workers out or executives out for what they call Silicon safaris, where they ride around in a little van and meet with a lot of startups and try to, you know, you know crack the code of yeah. what makes a startup like it is. Unfortunately, what they often focus on are the sort of superficial things like foosball and ping pong yeah. and, uh, you know, beer bashes yeah. and, you know, beer pong. And um, not really I, – I don't think that's really what millennials want, to be honest. That was a, one of the biggest revelations I had while reporting this book was okay. talking to millennials who really can't stand that stuff. You know, it's interesting because uh, – uh, when you think of uh, about how some of those companies have kind of played themselves out, I, I guess I wonder then what was it that that really drove the, these kind of mindsets? Then, if millennials are not in favor of that, what really was the turn to try and see this type of activity going on in businesses in many occasions? Well, I think what happened in Silicon Valley was, and this is a very cynical take. But it was that all of that super superficial stuff, the stuff we, we sort of lump it as culture, but, you know, the sort of fun culture kind of stuff was really this bright, shiny object that they dangled in front of 
employees, while on the side they were kind of sweeping away a lot of the more fundamental stuff like job security, the chance to get promotions, the chance to develop your career inside an organization at the very lowest level, to have health benefits. It's amazing how many people in their 20s I talked to who said the one thing they really want and they've never had is a job with health insurance. Like, oh, my goodness, that would be the most amazing thing ever, right? We really don't care about the ping pong. And they're starting to figure out that, oh, we got tricked. We got distracted by all this fun, kooky stuff over here, and they changed the deal on the back end for us. So a lot of them only get hired as contractors. They've never actually been a real employee. Um, So, so yeah, it turns out millennials, I don't think, are really any different from the rest of us. Um, And they're just starting to wake up to the sort of bait and switch that was played on them. So then do you think that we are going to see a shift away from that in, in the years to come? I think so, and I hope so, because I think companies are starting to realize that, you know, what you know, what what young people want, what young workers want is the same as everybody else. And and essentially it's just to be treated well, to be treated with dignity, to be treated uh with with respect and, you know, I had an editor at Forbes who used to say it's not the principle, it's the money, right? It's it's kind of the money. Like they, they want to get paid and have security. So yeah, I think In fact, in the last part of my book, I found and I write about examples of companies that are sort of becoming more human-centric, more employee-centric, and are they're making a bet that if we treat employees really, really well, that's how we'll stand out, and that's how we'll actually deliver a better service to our customer, um, and and that it's not just being good for the sake of being nice. It's actually good business. Well, and part of it is also the want of some of these companies uh, to have their employees putting in 16, 18-hour days if they can do that by also, you know, having cafeterias in the in, in the complex and and having all of those other kind of, you know, those those fun niche things to so that they can have their break in the office, not still be that far away from their desk uh, not take the walk outside. Yeah, you'll never leave. Uh, when I was writing on Silicon Valley one season of the show, we, we came up with this storyline, but we, we abandoned it. But it was the idea that Hooli, the big evil company in, in the show, was going to uh, announce plans to, to build this enormous underground uh, skyscraper, like an upside-down skyscraper. They just went down 20 stories into the ground, and they would just house everybody like, a, like an ant colony, you know? And then they yeah. would never have to leave. Everything you need is, is in the Hooliplex. So... Um, yeah, they're trying to get you to work work longer. And even though, you know, there's an enormous research that shows beyond what 60 hours a week really, you know, it doesn't you, – you, you don't gain any productivity. If you do sprints over and over and over again, it, it just stops working. You know, people need rest time. A great example of this, which is in the book, is a company called Basecamp in Chicago. And they're a software company. They are absolutely a tech company. They have a 40-hour work maximum. Like, you can't work more than 40 hours in a week. And in the summer, they make it 32, and everybody takes Friday off, and you have to do this. And if that means Mm -hmm. something doesn't get done, they say, okay, we'll push it to the next cycle. But they are determined not to work too much, which I think is, you know, amazing and radical. People in Silicon Valley think they're nuts, but uh, they're doing really, really well. And and how do they they make sure – that those those yeah. hourly standards are 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 held in check. I actually don't know how they enforce it because a lot of their workforce is remote. 
but it's right. set from the top. I mean, the boss just comes in and leaves at five, you know, whatever, and tells people, leave, right? You're not expected to stay later. In fact, you're expected to go home. So uh, now at the same time, you're expected during your eight hours a day to work, not just sure. work. So there are no ping pong tables. There's no foosball. There's no noise. The other thing they do that's radical is a lot of people work in offices, and it's uh, library rules, they call it. It's very quiet, and you come in, you do your work, you concentrate, you know, and then you go home. And they think, you know, if 40 hours a week is enough for any human being to do, and we can do plenty with that. You talk uh, in the book, in a couple of, of the chapters, about uh, uh, several factors that you believe are, are important to what we have seen in this this displeasure in the workplace. And, and I wanted to have you touch on a couple of them, uh, being money and insecurity and change. And, and take us through, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit on each one of those. Right. And I should back up and say that what set me off on this was seeing all this data that shows people becoming more and more unhappy at a time when I thought we should be happier than ever. And if you remember the late 90s and the predictions about what the Internet was going to do, we were all going to be rich. We were all going to have lots of free time. Um, we had very utopian ideas of this. And that flash forward 20 years and antidepressant use is skyrocketing. Suicide rates are skyrocketing. Uh, every survey of engagement and job satisfaction shows a decline. Um, so I tried to unpack that. And money, money is just a fantastic one. If you look into the numbers, and there's other people who have done this. I just cite their research. But there's $2 trillion a year that's been sucked out of the economy that used to go to wages. In other words, the entire working, uh, working and middle class have just been robbed of that money. Yeah. Um, change, you know, there's this, I'm giving a talk next week at a, in a series that's called, you know, the only constant is change. And we sort of herald that as this wonderful thing in the, in the new economy. But there's huge amounts of research that show our brains are just completely overwhelmed by constant change. We're not actually wired for that. Insecurity is another one. We now live with this new compact, especially in Silicon Valley, where there is no job security. You're going to last a year, a year and a half, two years, and you never know when that's going to happen. And again, there's enormous research that shows that that fear and insecurity actually does more harm to your brain than just getting fired. The, the fear of losing your job is actually worse for you than getting fired. Um, so in many, many ways, the modern workplace, as it's evolved, has become a place that's almost set up as a psychology experiment <laughs> full of stressors that overwhelm your brain, which is why the book is called Lab Rats. Essentially, yep. we have an entire, you know, it is like a giant sociology experiment playing out in the workforce on real subjects. We're talking with Dan Lyons, who is the author of that book, Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, one of the the companies you actually spent some time at is is Ford. And I'd be interested to know what the culture is like around Ford right now. Well, I was there uh, a year ago, so I don't. And, and before the real uh, trouble started, so I don't yeah. know. And, I, and as I say in the book, I have a caveat up front, which is I love Ford, and I've, I've visited them and written about them over the years as a journalist, and I um, I have tremendous respect for them and, and what they do. I think the ability to build millions of cars to operate at scale to sell those cars at a reasonable price 
and to still make a profit is a magic act that we all take for granted and we undervalue until we see somebody like Tesla that can't do it, right? right. By all of their, you know, Silicon Valley genius. Um, but yeah, Ford, when I visited, was, was right before Mark Fields got fired. Um, and they were sort of desperately still trying to do this thing of, we're a startup too, you know, and we have a self-driving car too, and and we're going to have a hackathon. And look at us. We look like Silicon Valley guys. We're not wearing suits anymore. And yeah. I kind of left thinking, oh, my God, this is bad. Like, this is bad. You know, thinking this, they look so afraid. And they, they were having this event to try to look, you know, proud and hip and cool. And, and they're talking about technology. And I thought, oh, the more you talk about it, the more you look scared, you know. And I wanted to say to them, just be Ford, you know, just you're, you're in Detroit. You're, you're, and, and, and the funny thing is, Mark Fields got fired. They fired a bunch of other people. They brought in Jim Hackett. And I just saw in there, they have this new ad campaign where they have Brian Cranston, the Breaking Bad guy, yeah, yeah. sort of doing that, saying, you know, let the other guys dream about the future. We're going to build it. You know, they're sort of returning to that, the recognizing the value that they have, you know, and, um, but yeah, and, and I wrote about them because I thought a lot of other big companies were going through that crisis. You know, it's like the the old, I'm an old guy, but it's like the old guy who starts dressing too young, you know, he gets divorced sure. and now he starts dressing like a millennial and you're like, oh, don't do that. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, <laughs> it was like that. And, um, but anyway, I, I hope and believe that they will turn it around do you do you think that that we can have that shift in general and i ask that because of how silicon valley has had an impact on our society over the last uh, couple of decades and how connected we are to our devices and our to to our technologies and and even a company like ford and and the rest of the automakers putting more and more technology in our cars do you think that that we can have a a fundamental significant shift going back in times and maybe it has to be company by company i think that's exactly right you know you hit the nail on the head right and, and ford has always had to incorporate technology they're 115 years old or something now i mean that you know taking new technologies now it's it's autonomous driving and uh, electric motors let's say or alternative energies i mean that's kind of what car makers do, right? They they should be able to absorb that and learn that. There's no special magic. I actually think what people maybe are going to start to recognize is that, you know, we make a lot of noise about how great Silicon Valley is, but I made a spreadsheet of every tech IPO since 2011, and I identified which ones of those companies have ever made a profit even since going public, and there's only 10. That's all I could find. And yeah. We have... If you look in Silicon Valley and try to find an example of a company that operates at scale, at large scale, and makes a profit, the last one is Facebook, which was founded in 2004. So these guys out there have, you know, they make a lot of noise about software is eating the world and we're so transformative and disruptive. They, they are in a way, but they're they're disruptive in the way someone that's dumping steel onto the market below cost or dumping memory chips below cost is disruptive. You have companies just operating at massive losses for a long period of time, but nobody has really built a successful company, you know, yeah. um, what I would call successful. And I 
think people might start to wake up to that, that, you know, maybe we got a little scared of these guys and we didn't need to. And maybe we had a little bit more going for us than they knew. And maybe they could actually learn from us. You, you know, you, um, yeah. You mentioned at the top, not only the practices that are going on, but the products as well. Take us into your thoughts on that because of uh, of where we are in this kind of digital connected culture that we live in. One of the things I love is an easy example, but if you've ever worked in an office with where people use Slack or something like that, um, there's, there's two things that, that happen that are both really annoying. One is you have the tyranny of the Slack thing on your computer all day long and it's constantly popping up. So you're trying to work and it's looking at this and you feel compelled to answer and you get nothing done because you're constantly trying to stay on top of this Slack conversation or, or multiple conversations. Right. The other incredible phenomenon that I saw when I was working at a startup is you'll see two people working either right beside each other or right across from each other, you know, face to face, and they're talking over Slack. They could just literally just right. look up and talk to each other. Right. And it's it's sort of Sherry Turkle at MIT has has called this this phenomenon of lo- alone together. It actually, in some ways, technology that's meant to bring us together ends up disintermediating us and actually separating us from each other. I actually think people, as the more we talk about AI and the more we talk about robotics, the more at the same time people are coming to realize the tremendous value of person-to-person connections, and, yeah. and those things are actually becoming worth more in a world where, you know, any anybody can have the same technology, right? So it's the quality of the people in your organization that maybe you're going to determine the success of your organization. Yeah, I was going to take that even a step further and just say the, the actual communication skills that – uh, that you and I have probably we we lived on going back you know 20 30 40 years uh, th- that's kind of been eaten away at by 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 a lot of standards yeah and, and obviously you know we're biased right because we're in the communication business right we're yeah. writers and journalists and so we probably overweight that but yet I I find it's not just in communication I look in products where you see things that are handmade that were or, or and that take Enormous amounts of skill and craftsmanship. Uh, watches is one thing. You know, like uh, really expensive watches are actually having this sort of uh, revival right now. Old-fashioned mechanical watches, partly because there is a story of people who, you know, they, they can't be made by machines. They can only be made by a really skilled human being. Or, or, so uh, in another example is Hilton. Hilton has, uh, the hotel chain has, has come to believe that those people who do the frontline work, that clean your room, that work at the front desk, those are the actual value add. Anybody can build a, a hotel and put rooms in it, right? And right. Put a bed in it, right? So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of ways in which I think the rise of AI is going to make us value human beings. Right now, we're tending, uh, everybody's devaluing humans. They're so obsessed with AI that they're like, well, why bother being good to our employees that we're just going to get rid of them all? You know, Uber. Would say why, why bother? You know, treating yeah, we, the drivers well. Yeah, we don't need to give them health care or anything like that. Yeah, no, we should abuse them. We should, and they last less than a year. The average Uber driver, they don't, and they just churn and burn or burn and churn. And you know, someday we're going to have self-driving cars anyway. So, well, you know, that's probably a lot longer away than you think. And actually, for most of us on the ground who take a car, the the person driving the car is yeah. our interface to that company. And uh, you know, so I, I think maybe people are going to wake up to that. 
You mentioned earlier uh, the the issue of the contract worker, and, and while people are are no doubt happy that they have the job, and and if you go back probably eight nine years, probably people didn't care because of how bad uh, the economy was and because of the recession. But I, I know that there are some companies already that have decided that they have gone away from the contract worker because they understand. The, the 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 problems that it's actually presenting on the structure of the economy. Yeah, there's a company I write about in the book called Managed by Q, and it's not a company I had ever heard of before and that most of us have ever heard of, but they are what you would call a gig economy company. They're the Uber of janitors. So yeah. if you need a crew to come clean your offices at night, you know, you can go to them. And they did something incredibly radical. The, the founder is a guy in his 20s, Dan Karen, and he said, we're going to make all the cleaners W-2 employees. We're going to give them health benefits. We're going to have 401K matches. Some of these people have never had a 401K. They don't even know what it is. So we're going to bring people in in groups and give them a class. Here's how you save for the future. And the key thing is we're going to offer everybody the chance to get promoted and move up and work in an office. And this, I had never thought of this before, but the head of HR said to me, do you understand if you're someone who cleans offices, you maybe you don't have any college, right? The idea that you might someday have a job where you work at a desk with a laptop and you don't get dirty, that is, you know, an incredibly powerful incentive. And, you know, working class people, people working in the field, working in those jobs are as upwardly mobile and as ambitious as everybody else, right? So yeah. that became this huge incentive. And their bet is that, if we do this, we treat our workers really, really well and make them part of the family, not this surf class that's over there, you know, on, that we never talk to. Um, they will provide better service to our customers. Our customers will stay with us longer and we'll make more money. Um, and it was a really smart bet because everybody else in the gig economy you know, went the other way. And then they all started getting sued. And the lawsuits brought all sorts of bad uh, – you know, attention and bad press and, yeah. and negative. And so, yeah, you're seeing now some gig economy companies that started off with contractors quickly moving over and saying, let's let's make them W-2 or people starting from scratch. But yeah, you're right. The entire Uber phenomenon and TaskRabbit all benefited from the crash in 2008, right? That everybody's out of work. Yep. That's kind of changing now. Um, and... Maybe for the better. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I don't, it would definitely be for the better if it happened. I don't know. For example, will Uber ever change? I, I, I don't know. In, in the they, last, they don't want to. in the in the last minute that we have, it, there's also the element I wanted to touch on of healthcare in general, and the impact yeah. that some of these things are having on the employees and the added cost to healthcare, which is obviously a huge topic. That, that we are seeing that companies are having to incur because of some of these problems. Yeah. Well, I, I don't uh, – I think they want to just avoid having to pay for this. Um, but the I, I can tell you from, from talking to employees, that was – that is one of the highest things on the list of things they want, that they, they value, that, it, that would make them take a job versus another job. Right, so, right. Uh, yeah. Dan, great talking to you again. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Great job with the book, and we look forward to the next one.
Thanks for having me. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Dan Lyons. The book is Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. The book is uh, available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.